So good evening. I decided to sit over here because I'm into feng shui and like talking down a an empty corridor just didn't feel good to me. So, so um, I just wanted to just give you all a really deep bow. Uh, it's been an honor to watch your practice and to hear from many of you today in the interviews and. Um, what you're doing here really matters, not only for yourselves, for your families, for your friends and loved ones, but this entire world. We really need more people like you. So, thank you. And to just really get that what you're doing here is actually really simple. But it's very hard to do, as this song will relay. And... Uh, I'm not going to play my ukulele because there's a chord in it that I can't reach, so I'll have to do this a cappella. Duka, duka, down, doobie, do, down, down. Duka, duka, down, doobie, do, down, down. Duka, duka, down, doobie, do, down, down. Waking up is hard to do. Don't take my pain away from me. Let me live my life in misery, cause if it goes and I'll be blue, cause waking up is hard to do. I love it when my mind is tight, and it keeps me up through the night. Come on, Buddha, it's just you, cause waking up is hard to do. They say that waking up is hard to do. Why just want to wear arrow when there can be two? (laughs) Don't say my suffering can end. Instead of waking up, I want to be a couch potato again. I beg of you, just let me cry. Wise effort, I don't want to try. Come on, Buddha, get a clue, cause waking up is hard to do. Doobie do down down. Duka duka down, doobie do down down. Duka duka down, doobie do down down. Waking up is hard to do. <laughs> It's always funny to me because um, these amazing teachers, like the three we have here, can like give these enlightening, inspiring Dharma talks, and you never clap. I sing like a <laughs> two-minute song, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> so, one of my um, greatest resources for the Dharma. People are always asking me, like, you know where do you even begin to study the Dharma, is actually Facebook. So, and many of you who are my friends on Facebook know that I am an addict, and I'm proud of it. So there was this meme that I saw, you know, uh, around, you know, just having a hard time and how to be with that. And it was these two owls looking at each other, and and they say, um, sometimes I just want someone to hug me and say, I know it's hard, you're going to be okay. Here's chocolate and six million (laughs) dollars. 
So just a few disclosures uh, before I begin. Um, Being up here is yet to become a comfortable and easy thing for me. I'm not someone who likes to read a whole lot, just in general, and uh, I don't tend to study the Buddhist texts or anything like that, so if you're looking for classical dharma, that's not me. Um, I keep my practice really simple by noticing my suffering and confronting it with kindness and compassion. I approach my practice in life with as much courage, willingness, and humility as I can. And I seek to find the Dharma in everything, because it's everywhere, all the time. So that's just a little bit about where I'm coming from. So I want to dedicate this talk to all my teachers, especially Tara and Jonathan, who've known me for the last 17 years, and and who saw my potential and believed in me when I couldn't believe in myself. So this quote speaks to that, how powerful it is to, to really see someone. Go and love someone exactly as they are, and then watch how quickly they transform into the greatest, truest version of themselves. When one feels seen and appreciated in their own essence, one is instantly empowered. So, thank you, teachers. So one of the greatest lessons I've learned on this path through these teachings and these practices is that suffering, as James mentioned last night, can actually lead to greater faith, trust, and patience with life. To me, those are very key aspects to happiness. So one of the most profound insights I ever got in my own personal therapy was when I uh, walked in one day and said to my therapist, "Um, so all these self-help books that I've read, all these workshops that I've attended to, you know, grow, um, all these meditation retreats that I've been on, all these years of therapy that I've been in, it's not about being happy, is it? And she looked at me and said, so what do you think it's about? And I said, I think it's about being fully alive. And she said, La, being fully alive is way better than being happy. And that totally changed the framework in which I saw my life. So in many of the interviews that I was honored to be a part of today, um, there were many universal themes estrangement from family, feeling a sense of aloneness or loneliness, not trusting oneself, the fear of sitting with discomfort and uncertainty, having judging, blaming, critical mind, losing oneself to another. So may my humble offering tonight be of benefit to anyone who's experiencing any or all of these human conditions. So the Dharma that you're about to hear is based on a true story. The names have not been changed (laughs) to deconstruct shame and to empower radical self-acceptance. So the title of this talk is, It's Not Easy Being Me, The Journal to Loving Myself. The journal, (laughs) the journey, sorry, to loving myself. So it all began on uh, July 23, 1964, 
I was born in Manila, the Philippines, um, to my father, who was an enlisted serviceman in the U.S. Navy, and my mother, who recently graduated from the University of the Philippines. So my dad was being transferred to Hawaii, you know, as his next um, station, and, you know, flew out there by himself to kind of find us a home. And my mother and I came when I was 10 months old uh, to this country. And my mother had two suitcases, $800 in her pocket, and me. And this was all about, like, most immigrants to this country finding a better life for themselves and for their children. Um, When I was about five years old, I started realizing that I was attracted to other little girls. And I was also aware of the fact that I didn't want to be a little girl. There were all these different signs, like I hated wearing dresses, I always wanted to wear pants, I always was like, I didn't like playing with dolls, I liked playing with G.I. Joes and guns and, um, you know, sharpening popsicle sticks on the sidewalk and stabbing girls with them and, (laughs) you know, I liked little cars to ride in. It was like really interesting and I noticed that it wasn't like any how any other little girl behaved. And so at a very young age, I realized that, like, there's something wrong with me. There's something, like, defective or innately wrong with me. I know I didn't use those words, but that was the feeling, you know, that I had. And the core message that, like, got left inside of myself was that if anyone ever really found out who I was, I will never be loved. I'll never be loved. And at the age of five, you know, I was like, I had no idea who to talk to. I really couldn't talk to my parents. I grew up in a family where um, communication was, like, optional. Like, we didn't really say much. We mostly, like, did stuff with each other, you know, and that was a way of showing love. Like, they always, like, picked me up when they were supposed to. I never felt, like, the sense of abandonment. They were always there. They fed me. They clothed me, you know, um, bought me toys, etc. But I didn't know what I was feeling. I didn't know what to express. I just kind of knew I was scared, and I knew that there was something wrong. And at a very young age, you know, I would go to these birthday parties of of, uh, classmates or friends, and people would walk up to me, or little kids would walk up to me and say, like, are you a boy or a girl? Are you a boy or a girl? And I I didn't know what to do. I felt a lot of shame, you know? Like, I kind of knew that I was a girl, but I didn't feel like a girl, and just really confusing. And I could remember, like, even walking into public restrooms and being called out, you know, and saying, hey, little boy, you're in the wrong restroom. And, and for the longest time in my life, like, I had the fear of just going to a public restroom for fear of being, like, humiliated, you know, in public. And then puberty hit. And I felt like, wow, I was able to, like, sort of get away with, like, sort of being a tomboy and stuff. And, and then I started to develop. I'm like, what's happening to me? It's like, ah. Oh. It was just horrible. And um, I didn't know what to do, you know. At the age of 12, it was around the time that this professional tennis player, Renee Richards, you know, came on the scene and like basically the first transsexual, you know, person that came to my consciousness. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe I have to have like one of those surgeries, you know, or if I don't have one of those surgeries, maybe 
I just have to kill myself because I don't. I don't know how I'm going to live. You know, I don't know how I'm going to survive. So I had to, like, figure out some sort of coping, you know, strategy for myself. And the biggest one was, like, just be a good kid. Like, just be whoever everyone else wants you to be. Do what they want. Be who they, you know, who they want you to be. And so, like, meeting all my parents' expectations about, like, being the perfect Asian child, you know, and getting straight A's and you know, being a great athlete and, you know, playing the piano and (laughs) all those sorts of things. With my friends, you know, it was like being super generous. I remember gifting people with a lot of stuff or, um, you know, just being the friend. Like in junior high, I got um, in in those superlatives, I always got like funniest and friendliest, you know. So always like this very like affable young kid. And I felt like I couldn't be anybody but that, you know. I couldn't have other feelings like sadness or anger or um, depression or whatever, you know. It was because everybody was so used to just seeing that aspect of who I was. So only showing the good side and completely suppressing everything else. And this came into play, you know, when I started developing relationships. I had my first relationship um, when I was 19. And, you know, it was totally that. Like, who do you want me to be? And and if they didn't want to be with me anymore, like, I just kept holding on to it. I just kept, like, trying to make it work. And it never worked. And so after multiple, you know, monogamous, serial monogamous relationships, I decided, you know what, the common denominator in all these relationships is me. Maybe I just need to stop. Maybe I just need to, like, get that finding happiness outside of myself or finding someone to complete who I was or validate who I was wasn't going to work anymore. And so I took a break and decided that, you know, I need to really just go inside and figure out who I was. And so that's when I found the Dharma. Because I was in a relationship with um, a woman who was a a pastry chef, a baker. And I came to this conclusion that um, I don't want the crumbs anymore. I want the whole fucking loaf, you know? (laughs) So, but I needed to just take some time, you know, for myself and um, really examine a new way of being in relationship. And this quote by Valerie Burton really speaks to that. If strong means taking care of everyone else to the detriment of yourself, if strong means pretending everything is okay when clearly you're hurting, if strong means keeping it moving after you've suffered disappointment, then strong becomes weak. Strong is good. Resilient is better. But resilience can sometimes look messy. It may look as if you're down for the count, But as long as you eventually get up, you're resilient. You have permission then to be human, to grieve, rest, cry, and feel whatever you feel. Learning to face your fears by being vulnerable is the first step. So an option that I also considered, you know, uh, around 
taking this break from relationship was just taking a great break from relationships forever. So I had even the thought of like, oh, maybe I'll just join a monastery, you know? And um, then I won't have to think about relationships because you can't do them <laughs> when you're there. Uh, and I wanted to do this um, ordain in, in Burma, and I talked with some friends, and, and they were like, yeah, the, the monks wear white robes, and the uh, nuns wear bubblegum pink robes, and I'm like, I need a swirl, you know, like a sherbet, you know, kind of robe, and I don't think they were going to be into that, so I decided to stay here in the States and hang out with Tara for a bit. So um, I was in a dentist office one day, and I was just going through the gay paper, and, and decided just to look at the personal ads, you know, because it was in the paper back then, and they were just kind of interesting to me how people put themselves out. And I came across this ad that was really compelling to me. And I thought, all right, well, maybe, you know, one more fling before the monastery, if I was even considering that. (laughs) So I answered this ad, and I met this woman. And as soon as I met her, uh, I recognized her from somewhere. And she said, um, you know, we got to talking, and, and we found out that we both meditated. And she asked me where I meditated, and I said, oh, I meditate with Tara Brock out in Bethesda. And she said, oh, you know, I went on a New Year's retreat with them about a year ago, but I actually belong to a different sangha. And I went, ding, 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 that's where I know her from, was that she was on this meditation retreat that I was on, and she was my Vipassana romance on that retreat, which Jonathan had beautifully described the other night. And so I um, decided to, like, not say anything because I wanted to find out if she's, you know. And so by the end of the evening, after a beautiful evening together, you know, she said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, I have to be honest with you. When um, uh, we were on that meditation retreat together, I actually had a big crush on you. And she said, well, I think that calls for a second date. So we've been together 13 and a half years ever since. So um, what was interesting about being in this relationship with Wendy is that it was the first time that I was actually clear about like, who I was and who I wanted to be in a relationship and what I wanted you know, from a relationship. And what I wanted from a relationship was actually you know, someone who was on a path. It didn't have to be my path, but was on a path. Someone who had community, you know, had their own friends and, and support that had a fairly decent relationship with their family, if that's at all possible. And, you know, that was open to working on themselves and working on the relationship. And she basically fit all those categories. And so um, one of the main reasons in the past that I never stayed in relationship was I felt like if I stayed in them long enough or too long, they would find out who I was. And so I would be like, all right, after a year, two years, you know, we'll, we'll move on. So a year and a half into our relationship, Wendy actually proposed to me. And I was so nervous, and like it just came out of nowhere that I basically said, I do, which didn't sound right at the time. <laughs> and so I did, and I, I got really depressed because there was no way out now. I had promised to spend the rest of my life with this person. And uh, Tara was who married us, and we included this uh, wedding wish by my teacher, 
dear friend Eric Kolvig, um, that kind of summarizes what I feel like is a very healthy dharmic relationship. It goes like this. May you take refuge in each other as a strong sangha of two. If to be free is the most important goal of all, to help someone to be or become free must be the most sublime and rewarding of human endeavors. I wish you deep, sustaining love for each other, but as rare as authentic love is, helping someone to be or become free is even rarer. If you make such mutual help the organizing principle of your life together, then authentic love and all other goodness will flow and purify between you as a natural result. The final exam of your helping each other to be free is likely to be losing each other. As surely as his wedding joins you, death or estrangement will part you. I hope that you will never take for granted that which can never be taken for granted. If you know in your hearts every day that you will lose each other, then you can cut away attachment with the fierce courage of the fox that chews off its own leg to free itself from the trap. If you know for certain this approaching loss, perhaps every day you can thank each other for the invaluable gift of that day together. Perhaps this knowing will help you to live gratefully and urgently together in the present moment. And perhaps dwelling deeply in the present will even allow you to see that separation is only illusion, that no loss is possible, and that you are bringing each other home. That, along with the bodhisattva vow of, you know, may all that arises, you know, wake us up. And so I was telling some, uh, a yogi today, I think, uh, in one of the interviews, is, is that, like, in so many relationships that we have in our lives, outside of, like, wedding vows, um, there's rarely agreements that we have about how we're going to be together, you know, how we're going to be in relationship to each other. And I feel like if we had those in our friendships, in our family relationships, in our workplaces, you know, if we had some sort of guidelines or at least rules of engagement in a way, it would prevent so much suffering. And so Wendy and I seldom argue about things, you know. It's not like we agree on everything, but we kind of laugh at what we don't disagree on. But when we do find ourselves, like, raising our voices or getting snarky with each other... um, it becomes like a mindfulness bell when we say, um, do over. You know, it's just like this way of like kind of intervening and, and cutting into this moment where like, oh, yeah, the way I said that wasn't appropriate. You know, it's kind of those things you say where you're like, why are you doing that for? And there's this parenthetical, you effing idiot, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And so it's those moments, you know, where we call like a, a timeout. And so there are these, um, and I shared this with a bunch of folks yesterday in my interviews, um, four universal principles by this teacher named Angeles Arian that I feel like are just the most amazing um, four points to like take into your everyday. And they are to show up, pay attention, speak and be your truth without blame or judgment, and to let go of the outcome and be open to the outcome. So to show up, just get there, just be there, 
you know, whatever commitments that you have, um, to do all you can to, like, make it happen, to pay attention, to be mindful, to be aware of, like, what's arising within you as you're with someone, and also to be aware of what you're noticing around you. Speak and be your truth without blame or judgment, you know, really speaking from your own experience, really, like, doing that without criticizing or putting down anyone else. And then the last, which I feel is the most important, is to let go of the outcome and to be open to the outcome. How many times in our lives are we attached to some sort of outcome which determines whether or not we speak and be our truth, whether or not we show up, whether or not we pay attention? So this quote It doesn't matter how much two people or more love one another if they're developmentally incompatible or if they don't have a shared willingness to become conscious. That's why we call it a relationship and not a loveship. Love alone isn't enough. If you want it to last, you have to relate to each other in ways that keep the ship afloat. So it really is a partnership and the willingness to hang in there. Uh, when it gets really difficult. So this way of, like, finding confidence in myself, you know, just to, there was still this way of, like, you know, being with Wendy and having her propose to me and want to spend the rest of her life with me kind of sort of filled that hole of, like, not feeling like I was lovable or not feeling like um, anyone would ever want to be with me. But that wasn't enough. I still had to continue to, like, sort of build this core of trust in myself, basically taking refuge in my own good nature and not all these other stories that I had about who I was and why I was undeserving of love. So about nine years ago, IMCW began to um, explore work in diversity, inclusion, and uh, was part of a uh, diversity committee to sort of look at, you know, why were we so white? Why were we so straight? Why were we so middle class? Why were we so highly educated? And not bringing in, you know, different kinds of folks that were more of a reflection of the D.C. area. And from that work came these two sanghas, the People of Color Sangha and the LGBTQ Sangha, which I, you know, continue to lead and at that point, you know, I still wasn't fully uh, embracing my identity as a person of color, nor was I embracing my identity as a gender queer, transgendered person. But I thought, you know, it was really important to create these spaces for, for folks. And it was interesting, you know, kind of the, the pushback or the reactions from the dominant culture sangha that I got, um, basically saying, you know, uh, why do you need to separate yourselves out? Like, everybody is welcome here. You know, we're all one. And, you know, I had been assimilated, you know, growing up, you know, to believe that, you know, my folks thought that to be able to survive in this country, I needed to follow the white people, you know, and be like the white people and kind of forget everybody else. And, and so I was very comfortable, you know, in, in all white spaces. I often joke that, you know, when I first walked into Wednesday night class, other than the Buddha sitting next to Tara, I was the only other person of color in the room. And so, um, 
And so it was just kind of interesting. And so the more that I actually embraced, you know, these identities and just saw how painful, like, it was to, like, be that, you know, in a dominant culture uh, sangha and even a mindfulness sangha, um, I just really, like, went through this another coming out period of, like, this rebellion and, and pain and, and suffering and all these different ways I would act out. And it's just amazing, you know, that... Tara and the leadership of I Am Sylvie just like continued to just you know hang in there with me during that time and so what I've learned over the years and especially in my community Dharma leader training program where it was the first sort of intentional cohort of uh, Dharma leaders and teachers um, that was made to be you know diverse you know we were 40% people of color 30% queer there was a greater um, age diversity, greater socioeconomic diversity. Um, and we looked like a really beautiful brochure picture, you know, and you, you had us all up there. But then when we began to interact with each other and start talking to each other, it was like, oh, this, this is not going to be as easy as we think it's going to be. It actually took about two and a half retreats before we could, like, settle down. And the reason why, one of the reasons why we were able to come together finally was um, being able to like share our own stories, you know, to really get that no matter who you are or where you come from or what your skin color is or who you love, etc., um, we all suffer, you know, we all have varying degrees of suffering. And just looking at each other, we can make so many assumptions about who each other is based on what we see and what we project uh, there's this quote by Anais Nin that goes, uh, we don't see the world as it is, we see it as we are. And so to be able to like hear each other's stories and really get, you know, like we all carry something and we all deserve love and affection and respect. And there are lots of ways, you know, like when we are around people that um, disagree with us or we disagree with, etc. Um, there are all these coping mechanisms, you know, that we have. There's this one meme I found on Facebook that said, um, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. You know, some of you might recognize this quote. Everyone that pisses me off should go to that field and stay there. <laughs> And it's by not Rumi. So. <laughs> so if we were going to be a little bit more mindful about it, um, here's another way. When we talk of the Bodhisattva vow in Buddhism, we talk about extending our arms and hearts outward, about reaching out to the whole world and embracing all without exception. We talk about truly seeing the one standing before us and loving them deeply just as they are with their many faults. That's the secret of the spiritual path. And it's not at all to say that you have to live with an abuser or an oppressor, but it's really about practicing to like not push them out of your hearts. So another way in my life where I've felt this sense of um, acceptance, you know, 
by others. Uh, I taught my first um, women's retreat with Tara about five years ago. And after that retreat, I was approached by this woman who said, uh, you know, La, I really love the way you teach. I think you'd be really great with kids. Do you have any experience working with teenagers? And I said, you know, I actually have no experience working with teenagers, and I'm quite afraid of them. (laughs) And a practice that I've developed over the years has been that of um, when something freaks me out, I just walk towards it, you know. I really say to myself, okay, you know, this is not going to be comfortable, this is going to be scary, and you're afraid of it, so you have to do it now, you know. And so my first test was um, they wanted to acquaint me with these retreats that they were doing, and they invited me down to southwestern Virginia, about five hours away, uh, to uh, observe a uh, weekend teen retreat. And I was all ready to go and excited to go, and then I got a call like two days before, and they said, um, La, we need a big favor, something fell through, and so we need you to drive three 15-year-old boys down to southwestern Virginia for the retreat. And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) They were supposed to be there, and I was just supposed to go in and watch. You know, I wasn't supposed to drive them five hours in my car. What am I going to do with that, you know? And so luckily I picked them up super early in the morning, so they were really sleepy, and they just, like, slept the entire way until we got to the KFC and and then fed them, and then they put their earphones on, and that was the rest of the trip. <laughs> so it was like, phew, that was, that was close. And then as soon as I got there, my inner teenager came out and was like, oh, what are you doing here? Like, you don't belong here. Look at all these kids, like, interacting with each other and getting along and knowing how to talk to each other, and you were always so awkward, and, you know, it was just so painful, and... Um, I got just like really depressed. And so the next morning, we're in a small group discussion, and the facilitator's like, okay, everybody share your name and say how you're feeling today. And, and um, so I shared my name. I said, you know, my name's La, and uh, I'm feeling um, disconnected and isolated and lonely, and I just feel like I'm not cool enough for all of you. And this 15-year-old girl directly across from me said, what are you talking about? Like, you're the coolest. And then this 15-year-old boy right next to her said, yeah, you shouldn't be talking to yourself like that. And I'm just like, they like me. (laughs) And I was totally sold from there, then on out. And they threw me into a summer retreat, you know, a couple of months later and taught my first uh, teen retreat with them there. And... And that's kind of the container that we try to create, you know, at these retreats is one where there's so much, like, compassion and love and acceptance. It's like one of the few places that so many of these teens uh, feel like they can completely be who they are. And when people can be completely who they are, all this wisdom and compassion and love just, like, oozes out of them. And so they've been, you know, some of my greatest teachers around acceptance, you know. And, and it was interesting, you know, because I would always, like, compare, like, you know, because maybe some of you who have teenagers who had teenagers, you know, there's, like, a lot of drama sometimes, or these feelings are so big and, and like, exponential. And I was never that kind of kid because I never knew what my feelings were and I didn't know how to express them. And so I'm like, 
what's all the hoo-ha about? Like, why are you so excited about things? Or why are you so depressed about things? And, um, and I just really had to, like, step into their shoes and just really get, like, they were basically, I was living, you know, vicariously through them in a lot of ways. And this past January, I was teaching a, a teen retreat, and um, I had fallen into a really deep depression last fall, into last winter, and I just couldn't shake it, you know. And I got there, and I had an amazing staff that was super supportive, and, and they're like, "Don't worry, La. You know, we'll take care of things, and you know, just just show up as best you could, you can." And I basically was supposed to give this wisdom talk, you know, which is already a setup for <laughs> disappointment and disaster to call something that. And um, and I just sat there and I just said, you know, guys, I, I've just been really depressed, you know, for these last few months, and I have like no idea what to say to you or what to do. And they all just like looked at me like just with these like really like caring eyes, and I said, you know, wouldn't it be really cool if like your parent was having a hard time and after they yelled at you could say. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling right now, and I didn't mean to do that. You know, please forgive me for that. And so I just sat there, and I, you know, without really knowing what to say, and I finally said, you know, I've been teaching these retreats for the last four and a half years, and no one's ever put me on a hot seat. You know, a hot seat is this game we play where a teen gets to be the focus of attention, and their peers ask them all these questions about their life. And so I thought, you know, I've got... 30 minutes to go in this wisdom talk and don't know what to do. So let's put me on the hot seat, you know, and, and they did. And they asked these really amazing, deep questions. And, and I'm not one, as, you know, many of you know, like I, I feel like a very competent person, you know, like I've got my shit together and I can make things happen and, and do stuff. And so I rarely like ask for support. And this was a way of like, you know, being vulnerable enough to say like, you know what? I don't know what to do right now. And I know there's some wisdom that I could share with you, but I actually need you to pull it out of me. And they did. And uh, it was one of the most healing, healing things for me in my life. It's another quote. One awesome thing about Eeyore is that even though he's basically clinically depressed, he still gets invited to participate in adventures and shenanigans with all of his friends. And they never expect him to pretend to feel happy. They just love him anyway. And they never leave him behind or ask him to change. So this past March, I decided to do my first um, extended long retreat. It was a month-long retreat at Spirit Rock. And, you know, I had taught a young adult retreat at Spirock the summer before, and uh, at lunch one day, Jack Hornfield comes up to me and says, La, I just spoke with Tara. I need to talk to you about something. And, uh, you know, when Jack Hornfield says, I need to talk to you about something, you, you talk to Jack Hornfield. And, you know, he was really emphasizing, you know, that it would be really a good idea for me to do a long retreat if I want to continue to teach and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, you know, and started making all these excuses about why it would be difficult for me to do. Um, but then he said, you know, regardless of however you want to share the Dharma, it would be a really good thing for you to do. So I did it. And I went, and I had, like, no idea, you know, what to expect, you know, from sitting for 30 days or whatever it was. 
and um, and I went with like you know no attachment to any sort of outcome. I was just going to totally give myself to the retreat. And as I said in the meta that I offered on Saturday, I decided to make like half the retreat a meta retreat for myself, and and just to see what happens. And it reminds me of this Thomas Merton quote that goes, "You do not need to know precisely what is happening." or exactly where it's all going to go. What you need to recognize are the possibilities and challenges offered by the present moment and to embrace them with courage, faith, and hope. And so that's basically how I went into the retreat. And I had the usual, you know, enter a retreat kind of thing where I basically was, you know, uh, sloth and torpor for a week. I was like, I'm going to be here for a month. I'm just going to see how long it takes me to recover, you know. <laughs> Whereas here, it's like, oh, I only have a week, so let me try to do this in two days and then, you know, get on with it. So it took me a week to, you know, kind of get into the retreat. And then, of course, you know, the whole, like, making up a story about everybody at the retreat, you know, and who you like and who I, who I liked and who I didn't like and who was irritating and who was I was crushing out on or whatever. Um, and then that, you know, kind of settled the deeper I got into practice and, um, and just being out there, it's just, it's just beautiful. Uh, nature was it, in and of itself a teacher. So it was going really great. I was having a really great retreat. I was getting really cocky about it and was like, all right, universe, bring it. I'm ready for whatever dukkha you got to come my way. And so um, three weeks into the retreat, I get a knock on my door. And as some of you know, when you go on retreat, you never really want a knock on your door because it doesn't really usually mean anything good. So I went to the retreat manager's office, and um, my partner had called, so I called her back, and she basically told me that my mom had been um, in the hospital and she was diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor. It was a... tumor that metastasized from this breast cancer that she had three years earlier. And as I heard that news, I could just feel my body just like sink into the chair and just let the news just kind of wash over me. And I didn't get like hysterical or upset. It was basically like, wow, this just came out of nowhere and like, this is what is. And I had to decide, you know, what I was going to do, you know about that. I had one more week to go on this retreat that I had been, you know, like, this is going to be my longest retreat. And then I had my mom. And I'll tell you a little bit about my relationship with my mom in a few minutes, but um, there was a part of me that was like, damn it, mom, I only had a week to go, you know. It's like, But I decided to go home. And um, it was very painful to leave this retreat where I actually, all these people that I had you know, put down and criticized and judged like I'd now fallen in love with, you know. And there was no way for me to say goodbye to them. And so, you know, sort of did all the logistical things and met with my teachers for a final interview and uh, had some friends pick me up um, early. And before I left, I decided to climb up this hill that, like, went to this bench that overlooked Spirit Rock to say goodbye And as I was hiking up this hill, um, this voice came to my head that basically said, in this life, you will experience pain, but you no longer have to suffer. And it just kind of felt like this moment where someone or something was just going to take all the arrows, 
and there was never going to be another second arrow. So I flew home and um, saw my mom, and she was kind of lost a lot of movement on her left side of her body. And, you know, my dad was freaking out. My sister was pretty scared. Um, and I knew that was what I was going to be coming home to. And on the plane coming home, I, I created this aspiration or this intention that I was just going to go and just be a loving presence. I was just going to sit there and just feel out what's happening and then just try to, like, be there in what, whatever way felt appropriate, you know, in that moment. So my mom ended up staying in the hospital for about four weeks um, as they, you know, ran a bunch of tests and trying to figure out, like, a treatment strategy. And uh, they basically said, you know, this is terminal. You have four to six months to live. And so for me, that was like, I have four to six months to, like, resolve my relationship with my mother. And it was a relationship where um, we weren't very emotionally close to each other. My mom is a very um, kind of stoic, very hard, very, you know, she was very strict raising us, uh, pretty non-emotional. So it was always, like, really difficult to connect with her. But, you know, when she got sick, um, she really softened, you know. And I really used that softness as, like, an entry you know, into saying things that I wanted to say and I needed to say to her and to, to just really, like, be there and, and just really heal, you know, whatever needed to be healed in our relationship. You know, I, I came out to the world when I was, like, 21. I came out to my parents when I was 38. And the reason being is that, you know, I just never thought that they would understand, you know, or they would accept me. I always had this fear that they would actually disown me. And so um, what spurred me to come out to them was I, I took the Landmark Forum. I don't know if any of you have been to that. And you know how they're always challenging you to do things that you don't ever want to do? That was my thing. And so I called my parents one day and I said, um, you know, Mom and Dad, I have something I want to tell you. Is it okay if I come over for lunch? And like, sure, you know, come over. Come over for lunch. And my dad always, he's a cook, so he makes this, like, extravagant meal. But they always had the TV on, you know. And so I said, uh, you know, can we turn Bonanza off for a second? <laughs> and my dad was not very happy about that. So, um, and I said, you know, this is something that I've been wanting to tell you for a really long time, and I've been afraid to, um, but it's that I'm gay figure that was an easy way to like make it happen versus like I was not born in the right body and da 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 so let's just do that and and I got emotional of course and then my mom said um, oh you don't need to cry like you know you're our daughter and we love you regardless we've been waiting 18 years for you to say something <laughs> it's like 18 years 18 years of me thinking that you know they would not love me or accept me for who I was. And so what was even funnier, this is like the weirdest coming out story ever in my eyes, because she then said, um, so now there's three things you have to do. And I said, what are those? <laughs> and she's like, first, you have to get your finances in order. <laughs> then you have to take a self-defense class. <laughs> and then 
like, out of the blue, my father has not said a word yet. So he chimes in and says, and you have to replace all the appliances in your kitchen. <laughs> I'm just like, where am I? <laughs> this is so bizarre. So that probably tells you a lot about my relationship with my parents. Um, and so I was just like, you know, they're cool with me. I'm just going with it, you know. And uh, the first thing that got done was I did replace all the appliances in my kitchen. I got my finances in order, and I still have to take a self-defense class. So, um, so it was, you know, they, my parents never showed me love in the way I wanted them to show me love. And, and as I've gotten older... I've just realized, like, you know, they are who they are. You know, as much as I want them to accept who I am, I have to accept, like, who they are. And so um, my parents are, are, like, staunch Republicans, super conservative, um, Catholic, fox-watching, Bush-loving Republicans. If we didn't look so much like them, my sister and I would be adopted. You know, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing um, how 180 we are with each other. And so... Um, rather than keep fighting with my dad about, like, you know, whenever we're at home watching Fox News together about Obama or Republican Party and stuff, I decided, you know, I want to understand where dad's coming from. Like, I don't want to just keep criticizing him for his beliefs. I want to, like, know who he is and why he is the way he is. And I said, Dad, like, why are you Republican? And he said, you know, when you were younger and I had my own catering business, I catered for a lot of politicians and the Republicans would treat me really well, and the Democrats would treat me like shit. I said, okay, Dad, I get it. You know, I just honored that. Because my father is like someone, like, you know, people treat him well, especially coming into this country as an immigrant. Like, he had such loyalty regardless, you know. That was what he knew. And so my mom is sick, and... Um, we're wanting to, to heal this relationship. And I was walking her down the hospital corridor one day, and she's, um, you know, moving along really slowly, and I just come back from the, th- you know, the I call it my three-quarter month-long retreat now. And I said, you know, Mom, when we're on retreat, we actually walk this slowly during walking meditation. And she just looked at me and said, um, can you teach me how to meditate? And I was like, What'd you do with my mother? Um, <laughs> so we went back to her room, and I had her lie down in her bed, and I just guided her through a simple you know, breath and body scan meditation. And she was totally into it. Like, in two minutes, she was in the zone. And 10 minutes later, she, like, opens her eyes and says, Can you tape that for me? That was very relaxing. <laughs> and I'm like, sure, Mom. And uh, I would teach her, like, how to do Qigong and in her seat, and, and she, that was our little ritual for the next, you know, 20 days that she was in the, the hospital. And Tara and Jonathan were kind enough to make her a little video of Tara doing Qigong with their dog and um, uh, guided meditation as well. And so um, my mom, who's a devout Catholic, would often say to me as I would leave her each night, you know, please pray for me. And I asked her, like, you know, Mom, what do you want me to pray for? And she said, "Um, I want you to pray that God will accept me. 
you know, and I said, you know, Mom, you know, don't you feel like, you know, you've lived a good life and that you're deserving of God's love? I mean, you raised two awesome kids and, you know, um, you've been so generous, you know, in so many ways. She's like, yeah. And I said, well, you know, I think that's good enough, but I'll still pray for you. And my mom is a stickler. Like, she'll say, um, you know, do you still go to Mass? <laughs> I haven't gone to Mass, you know, unless I have to with her. And I said, um, no, I, you know, I don't. And uh, it's like, do you believe in God? And it's like, you know, my mom, I do believe in God. I still pray to God. You know, I light a candle at the shrine whenever I'm near there. And, uh, you know, and I continue to pray for you. Um, but I still, you know, have this other practice that I do. And um, I've really found it really helpful. And I've become so happy. Like, you don't have to worry about me. No matter what happens, you don't have to worry about me. And so um, it just felt really good to be able to, like, honor, you know, kind of what she wanted. And for me, it was like, she just wants me to be okay, you know. And she wants me to be okay in the way that she's found, you know, she's able to be okay. And for me, it was... um, being able to honor that, but still, like, speak my truth and just say, yes, and, you know, this is who I am. So I'm happy to say that my mom is still alive and kicking. She's, like, you know, broken the odds in terms of her prognosis, and her oncologist basically said, you know, I don't know when you're going to die, so, you know, live your life, you know, as you will. Her mind is beginning to deteriorate more, but, you know, she's still... She's still there. And I'm just grateful, you know, for this time. It would have been a lot harder if she just died instantaneously. Um, So all that to say that, um, you know, 46 years ago, my little five-year-old would have never imagined me coming out to 86 people in this way and today I can honestly tell my little five year old you know buddy we made it you know there's absolutely nothing wrong with us being exactly who we are is now what has us feeling so deeply accepted loved and cherished So my invitation to you all is to remember that, that there is absolutely nothing wrong with you. And that you be able to take in love and acceptance and belonging as best you can. So I'll end with this quote. Life is amazing, and then it's awful. And then it's amazing again. And in between the amazing and the awful, it's ordinary and mundane and routine. Breathe in the amazing, hold on through the awful, and relax and exhale during the ordinary. That's just living a heartbreaking, soul-healing, amazing, awful, ordinary life. And it's breathtakingly beautiful. So may you trust life 
may you live fully. Let's take a few moments.